AIG is holding Bank of America hostage, and we've got some big hedge fund moves. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. It is Wednesday. I'm Matt Kopenheffer. This year next to me is David Hansen. Mm-hmm. David, bad news, sad news. CeeLo Green is leaving The Voice. He told Ellen on her show that he's leaving The Voice. Who in the world could possibly replace CeeLo Green? I've got two replacements for him. All right, let's hear number one. Package deal. It's a package deal. It's, it's one. a package deal. Millie Vanilli. Who knows more about great singers? Who knows? Who, who does know more? Who are you going? I- with? I'll tell you. I'll tell you who does. Kanye West. Good what, is, what does Kanye not know about anything? Kanye knows everything about everything, about fashion, <laughs> about, about probably finance, physics. I'm guessing investing. finance, too, investing. I, Kanye should be on this show. I think Buffett was thinking about bringing him on as a portfolio. I'm guessing Kanye that. watches this show. If he wants to come on and be a guest and, and let everybody know how much he knows about investing, happy to have him. be happy to have him. We'd welcome him. Let's go to the first headline. First headline of the day uh, comes from CNN Money, why retailers aren't protecting you from hackers. This is about the reluctance of retailers and of banks and of credit card companies to collaborate and come up with a more secure system. It seems like nobody cares. My first reaction to this, let me put it this way. My first reaction to this was that it seems like nobody cares about reputational risk. But it's not just reputational risk. This is, this is real money. Mm-hmm. This is, it's going to cost money to switch over to a more secure system, but they're losing real money in the meantime. For the banks, fraudulent charges get charged back. They're responsible for them. But for the retailers, too, it's estimated that the, the breach at Target is going to cost billions of dollars for Target. Why, why are they not coming together on this? I don't know why they're not, because there's no incentive. Well, I do know why, because there's there no incentive, incentive for anyone to jump at it, because it's not a huge... Billions of dollars, not enough in, of incentive for you? Well, let me, look, let me put it this way. For an investor, I don't think... I think the investors are right not to punish Target for this, or any of the banks for this, because this is such a small portion of the business. Yes, there's reputational risk. It's not good to have your name in the headlines. But back in September, when we were up at Columbia talking to Bruce Greenwald, we, we asked him about reputational risk. Right. What does this mean to investors? And he said, unless it really puts the company at risk of bankruptcy, there's really no reason to worry. I don't think Target's going bankrupt over this. I don't think they, any banks are. So, No, they're not going they bankrupt, worry. but they're losing billions of dollars. How is that not... Why not spend... It's going to cost billions of dollars. Why not spend those billions of dollars to head this off and, and potentially not have this kind of thing happen again? Would you? What I spent, I don't have billions if of you, dollars. If you, if, were, if you were a retailer, would you revamp your system even though you haven't been breached yet? Say you're not Target. Yeah. You know what? This is actually, this is actually from a public relations perspective, this would be a great time for some other retailer that's not Target to step up and, and try to take the lead on this and say, we are the secure place to shop. You can come use your credit card here. And you know what? Visa and MasterCard, while they're not on the line for the, for the stuff that gets charged back for the fraudulent expenses, they should be championing this because, granted, I'm not not using my Visa or MasterCard because of this. I'm not using, not using my credit cards. But they should be championing this because there are people on the margin that are saying, this is dangerous. Somebody's going to get my credit card information. I'm not going to use my credit card. So this should be something that they should be encouraging. Without getting on my Bitcoin bull... Too much. Oh, no, here we go. Too much, or the, the cryptocurrencies fall <laughs> too much. It's this incremental stuff that pushes people to think of new things like Bitcoin, new ways of paying. So I still think there's going to be changes in the payments industry over the next decade or so. 
So that's a good thing. It's a good thing for us. Don't scream. All right, second headline. Second headline. Going over to Reuters. AIG holding B of A, $8.5 billion hostage, investors say. We've talked about this before. It's a hostage situation. This is scary. I'm sick, I'm sick of talking about it. This settlement was agreed upon initially in June of 2011, way back then. Many parties said, sounds good, let's do it. AIG said, not so fast. And it's been holding up, partially approved by a judge now, part of the settlement still pending approval from another judge. Can we just get past this? Does this even mean anything anymore? Well, the, uh, the response to it, right, would be why in the world is AIG doing this? Because you've got all of these, all these parties on the other side of the issue. You've got Goldman Sachs over there. You've got PIMCO over there. You've got the Federal Reserve of New York over there all saying, this is good. We're okay with this. Let's go through with it. And then you've got AIG hanging out over here saying, oh, no, 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 not so fast. Right. But it's because of another. It's because of another lawsuit. They're looking for leverage in another secure. I think it's a securities fraud lawsuit, mm-hmm. right? They're looking for leverage for a securities fraud lawsuit. Now, the interesting thing I think for investors to keep in mind on this is that this splashes across the headlines, and then it gets scary. It gets scary because eight point five billion dollars is a big number, and the potential for this to not go through. Maybe there's more big numbers. Maybe there's more billions of dollars numbers uh, being thrown around here. So let's think about this in context. In context of AIG's shareholders' equity, which is $101 billion, mm-hmm. and Bank of America's shareholders' equity, which is 200, call it $230 billion. So when we think about the impact, and remember, we value these companies based on their, on their book value, their right. shareholders' equity. So if we think about what's a, a billion dollars this way or that way for, for either of these companies, you're talking about like a 1% or 2% movement. So if a billion dollars goes over to Bank of America, that's negligible on a $230 billion record. Well, it would be going to AIG, right? So right, yeah, if yeah, it's, right. So you're talking about, uh, for a billion dollars, you're talking about less than a half percent. Or, yeah, a billion leaving Bank of America. Right, it's less than a half percent. Okay. So it's not, it's not that big of a deal. This isn't something for Bank of America shareholders to be losing sleep over. It's also not really something for AIG shareholders to get, be getting too excited about. I think the reason it's still a big deal, because it was a big deal back in 2011, during the summer of 2011, when Bank of America was in a terrible spot, and they had just agreed to pay $8.5 billion, possibly more in other settlements. Mm. So it was a big deal at the time, but now as we move past other well, things, it's yeah. not as big a deal. To, to be fair, I would say that it is still a big deal from the perspective that Ameri- Bank of America is still in the process of trying to move forward. Mm-hmm. And, st- and having to stay in court over this, having to c- continue to litigate this, and having this continue to hang over the bank... It doesn't let the, the bank have a clean slate and move forward. All right. Third headline. We've got a little earnings here. This is from the Wall Street Journal, uh, and it's Medallion Financial. This is uh, ticker symbol taxi. This is a, a stock that probably not a lot of our, uh, the WTMIers out there are familiar with. But it's kind of an interesting one. They're a bank and, and a financial services company that primarily finances taxi medallions. And this is a big business. This is really big business, mm-hmm. particularly in New York where the value of a taxi medallion is around a million dollars. And a taxi medallion basically gives you the right to operate a yellow exactly. taxi in New York, for anyone who doesn't know. Exactly. So um, overall, the, the, the results were fine mm-hmm. uh, for the company. Uh, no, no big thing, no big comment there. My question to you is when you look at a company like this, does it worry you to have so much concentration in such a specific uh, financing category? In terms of geography and looking at just this business, a lot of, of it's itself, in New York, a lot, and most of it's in medallions. Right. No. 
Uh, I think does, you, that I work. think you can have a very concentrated kind of industry that you're looking at, and as long as you're the expert in the space and you know the appropriate way to price the risk of a medallion mm-hmm. and the value of, of the loans that you're giving, that's fine to me. But my concerns with a medallion come in with just broader industry trends that are happening in kind of transportation in general. When you look at companies like Lyft and Uber coming in trying to disrupt the space, it's going to be a fight. The taxi cabs in New York City are not just going to go, okay, come on in. Like, you guys can take whatever you want. We don't need medallions anymore. So there's going to be changes in here. There's going to be a fight on the medallion front, but it's those bigger industry concerns that concern me rather than the concentration in just the one. What's city. interesting is that Felix Salmon wrote an article about Uber and the, the New York taxi situation. Mm-hmm. I think it was late last year. And he was talking about how Uber is good for customers and good for drivers because the problem is is that you, you've got these transportation companies that own the medallions and, and they're financing potentially through uh, Medallion Financial. But they own the medallions. They rent them to the drivers. And then the drivers, for every ride that they're giving somebody, basically half of that is going to the company uh, to pay for renting this uh, medallion. Right. So when you talk about Uber moving in somewhere, this is potentially a better opportunity for the drivers in New York City. What would it take for you to be interested in, in buying Medallion? I mean, you look at the results, the results look good. There's, it seems like a strong company. The balance sheet's in good shape. Is it just an industry that you would be too scared to jump into? I, I know I personally would. I don't know if I would. Is there anything that would get you interested? The right, value, the right valuation. I, I think at a compelling enough valuation, I could get in on this. But I, I would be worried about the, the, the changing industry dynamics there. All righty. The focus for today, we've got 13 Fs coming out. That's where big money managers, asset managers, hedge funds disclose what they own. We can compare that to past filings, figure out what they've been buying, what they've been selling. We talked about Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway's 13 F yesterday. Mm -hmm. Today, we're going to take a look at a couple more. Let me run down a few real quick. Uh, George Soros, uh, the the big hedge fund manager, uh, took new stakes in J.P. Morgan and Citigroup eliminated a stake in uh, Chevron, lowered the stake in JCPenney. Mm-hmm. Maybe not too much of a surprise there. John Paulson kept, uh, has stayed strong in his bet on gold and took a $1.5 billion stake in extended has, stay. Has the gold the been, a, been a cha-ching? No, no, no. I just think of gold. <laughs> okay. And it's like, that's what... That's Sounds what, good. Yeah, I, I guess I, it's been more like this lately. Yeah, quite. Or possibly like this. That's probably more. Uh, Ackman uh, at Pershing Square Capital cut it, cut the Pershing stake in Procter and Gamble, but I think that that was actually rolled into a an options an options stake. There's uh, right. Ackman's still pretty right. And high the thirteen F doesn't Gamble. the thirteen F doesn't disclose everything. Uh, if there's a short position, that's not going to be in the thirteen F. So right. don't look at this and saying this is their only strategy here. Sound like a slight uh, increase in in Pershing's stake in Air Products. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Einhorn uh, took a billion-dollar position in Micron. That's the little uh, the, the computer chip manufacturer. And then Berkowitz over at Fairhome Fund, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Mm-hmm. Just jump, jumping on there, j- just getting more and buying common shares now. Mm-hmm. We had talked about on this show before that Berkowitz's primary position had been in preferred. Now he's getting in on a lot of the common shares. Meanwhile, it looks like he's done some selling of uh, Fairhome's big stake in AIG. So my question to you, David, you take all this into account. You think of all these guys. Which one of these 
hedge fund managers would you least want to be on the other side of a trade from? So if I'm shorting something, they're buying it. Exactly. Or if you're buying something, they're selling. There you go. I'm going with Bruce Berkowitz. You would not want to be on the other side of Bruce Berkowitz. I would not. You look at the Fairhome Fund, it's so concentrated at the top, the top five holdings account for what, 75, 80% of the fund at least. So they do an enormous amount of research that goes into every position. Mm -hmm. So if I was selling something, I would think, and they're buying, I've got to be missing something. Because the amount of research they put into holdings like Sears, AIG, Bank of America, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, you look at... They made that position. Then they also thought of an entire new way to do mortgage finance. Well, look, so that might not happen. So that begs the question here: Why, why, why do you stay adamant that you're not getting into Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac? Why are you staying out of Fannie Mae? Thinking about how much research Berkowitz does. Well, that doesn't mean just because they're buying it, you have to agree with them. If I if I was if I was shorting Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, then I would be concerned if they were buying it. But for me, it just doesn't fit my risk profile. It doesn't mean that he's a complete idiot and they're going to be wrong. It doesn't fit my risk profile and what I want to get out of my returns. But he's the one that I would be scared, scared of. What about you? I wouldn't want to be on the other side of Soros. Because, look, and, and, and maybe Einhorn would, be, Einhorn would be a second. But for, for Paulson and for Berkowitz and for Ackman... Maybe less so for, but definitely for Ackman and Berkowitz. I understand the the kind of process that they go through, and so if they're if they're on the opposite side of a trade for me, I feel like I could be able to think through it and figure out pretty well what their expectations are, right. because that's that's the important part. What are their expectations versus what are my expectations? Mm-hmm. And so I, I feel like I figured that out with Soros. I feel like he's like some kind of sorcerer. He's got like this trading stuff going on, the reflexes. I mean, granted, I haven't I haven't done a lot of reading on Soros. I know he's written uh, some good books. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably should should read those. But that's the whole point. I don't know a lot about Soros. I don't understand his process as well. So if he's on the other side of a trade, I don't really know what I'm dealing with there. Whereas he's, these other guys, he's a little I, scary. He's got the most experience, longest time in the business. It, well, exactly. He's seen a lot. Yeah, yeah. He, he can't unsee things he's seen. <laughs> you know, he, can, he, he cannot unsee those things. So, uh, yeah, Soros, I would not want to be on the other. Einhorn is, is a close second, primarily just because of that poker prowess. I, that whole poker thing just, like, freaks me out. Sitting across the table from, from him at a poker table would be scary, but being on the other side of a trade I think would be scary as well. I agree. All right, mailbag. We have an email address. It's WTMI at fool.com. Send us an email. We love to get them. We love to answer questions on the air. And here's the question for today. This comes from Brendan Sheehy. I really enjoyed your discussion with Michael Mobison in your last podcast. When talking about valuing a company using the present value of future cash flows, he said with banks you use equity cash flows back to the equity value. Can you explain in more detail what that means? Explain it. Sure. I can, I can do that. The idea that what you want to get to is since you are the owner of equity, when you buy a stock, you're the owner of the equity as opposed to owning the debt, you want to make sure that when you're valuing a company, and valuing a company is all about figuring out, projecting out its cash flows out into the future, discounting those back to the value to today, and adding it all up. Mm-hmm. So you want to make sure that what you're adding up is the cash flow to equity. So that's what uh, Mobison was talking about when he was talking about cash flows to equity. Now, the issue is that it's a little bit different with a bank versus another company. So with Procter & Gamble, for instance, the debt 
at Procter and Gamble is a financing decision. It's it's a it's a de- strategic decision on management's part on how to finance the company. So they sit down at a table, say, do we want to issue more shares? Do we want to get debt, right. long-term debt, short-term debt, et cetera? Exactly. And when you look at the income statement, it's broken out as such. So you've got basically all the operations of the company, all the operational impacts of the company. You, you get down to the uh, operating income. And then below that, you have, that's where the, the interest expense comes in. Mm-hmm. Because that's, it's seen as kind of separate from the operations of a company like that. Whereas with a bank... It's basically part of it's part of the business. Using debt is part of the business. So, if we think of Converse, for instance, I assume they still are using Canvas as the uppers for those shoes. I Most should know. I, I wear I wear Cons every day. Debt is to banks what what a Canvas would be to Converse. So it's a it's a um, input to the business. So when you when you work through that income statement, you're getting to cash flows to the to, to mm-hmm. equity. So it's a little bit different the way you think about the, how a bank is using debt. And so it's a little bit different to think about how am I going to calculate and project out uh, these cash flows. Debt. Right. So essentially a bank has to have debt. A bank without debt doesn't really... It's like a day without sunshine. It doesn't really make sense, right? I, I think that's true. I think a bank without debt... I may go back on that. That's an interesting question. What is a bank without debt? Let's ponder it. Because deposits are basically debt too, right? Essentially. They're liabilities. We we can say liabilities instead of a company without liabilities. What does that look like? Heaven. Anyway, maybe we'll come back with that. But yeah, I hope that answers uh, Brendan's question. And uh, again, WT Myers can send us their questions. We will attempt to answer them uh, and maybe not get caught up in ponderances like that one that you just threw on me, and now I'm like, Sorry. I'm all up in my head. Let's go to the game for today. The game for today is rankings. This is where we take five things, usually companies, and usually. we rank them from one to five. Simple as that. We were just talking about the hedge funds and their 13F filings. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the top holding of each of those hedge fund managers we just talked about. That's David Einhorn, John Paulson, Bill Ackman, George Soros, and... Uh, Berkowitz. Why am I forgetting Berkowitz's first name? I want to say Bruce. Bill Berkowitz. <laughs> Bill Berkowitz. Bruce. <laughs> That's his brother. So, so we're going to take each one of their top holdings and rank them one to five. David, what do you got? Top holdings. I mean, number one overall Number position. one overall position, largest position, at least as listed in their 13F filing, if they have some secret position that's not on there. Okay. Here are my rankings. I'll throw them up on the screen. Number one, AIG over at Fair Home Fund. Number two, Apple with uh, Einhorn at Greenlight. Number three, Extended Stay, Paulson. Number four, Teva at Soros. Number five, Canadian Pacific, Pershing Square. Now, the requirements for the top holdings, and full disclosure, I don't know a lot about some of these companies. The top two, I do know about. I am an investor in both of those companies. AIG, number one, definitely, amongst these holdings, in, in my opinion. Valuation still looks very good. It's creeped up. Last week, they reported earnings. People weren't crazy about it, but that is fine with me. I'm glad AIG had a boring earnings report. Things are moving in the right direction. Valuation still looks good. I'm not expecting this thing to double over the next year. That's not going to happen again, in my opinion. Or will it? Or will it? But I think you can still get some very solid returns at AIG. That is why Berkowitz is holding on. That is why I have it, number one. What do you got? Do a picture for mine, or do I just read mine? No, you got a picture. Oh, I got a picture, too. Woohoo! Uh, number one, Apple. Uh, I'm sorry, number one, AIG. Number two, Apple. Number three, Canadian Pacific. Number four, Extended Stay. And number five, Teva. 
So I've got the I've got the first two the same as as yours. Let me jump in on Canadian Pacific. Yeah, what go do you ahead. you are a you're interested in the railroads? I what, love railroads, man. Can you give us your rationale? Is it just because Buffett loves them? Is that why you love? Them? Is it just because Buffett loves them? No, think about this. I wish I had a choo choo sound on this. Uh, <laughs> we, that would we be, can arrange that. Would that. be great. That's not that doesn't quite do it. Anyway, uh, moat. When you think about the moat of a railroad, who is building new railroads today? Not many. Who's people. doing it? Not many people. It's it's just not happening. So the what the railroads have staked out at this point is a pretty big barrier to entry for anybody else. And when you think about the in short distances, you have some pretty good competition from uh, from, from trucks. And, and from anything that moves on the road, basically. And when you're thinking about something that's, that's high cost, needs to be moved quickly and, efficient, and efficiently, uh, you can have some competition from air. But when you think about low cost items, heavy things that need to be moved a long distance, grains, aggregates, chemicals, why would you do it any other way than rail? It, do, it doesn't make sense. So the, the rail, the, the trains have a big advantage when it comes to this. In particular, when you think about chemicals, when you think about energy products up in Canada right now, maybe I should be looking at the Canadian railways. I have been primarily, in my interest in railroads, I've been looking primarily at the, the major U.S. national networks. So you have, it, you have it ranked three more based on the fact that you're interested in Because I love choo-choos. Because I love choo-choo trains. Rather than a Cana- Canadian Pacific. Uh, Pacific specifically. Pacific Pacific. <laughs> exactly. Um, but also because, uh, again, like, like I said before, I understand Ackman's process. I understand what he, how he gets to what he's investing in. So that's part of that as well. All right. And, and he, what, do you, what do you say about Apple? Just to f- close out here, why is Apple your number two? It's my number two because I know more about it than the other three. I don't necessarily love it today. Um, that's it. That's what you got. Yeah, that's that's all I got. We're not going to go into Apple. They can they can <laughs> listeners and viewers can check out Tech Teardown if they want all their Apple news. That's uh, a good point. Hosted by Evan New, our tech specialist here. All right, closing it out with the Twitter sphere. David, what is our first tweet? First tweet is from David Lazarus. Capital One says it can show up at cardholders' <laughs> homes and workplaces. Now this is, I guess, a new terms of service. No, here. it's not. It's not new. An it's existing new. terms of yeah, service. It's Capital just- One. And the fine print says that they can show up and say, what, say up? what up? <laughs> what up? Where's our money? Capital One did come out and say this was more referring to big items like boats or, I don't know, what do, they, what do you call them the, on the water? Jet oh, ski? yeah. In case they need to get re- repossessed. So they're not going to go, if you miss a credit card payment, they're not knocking at your door, probably. Well, would be pretty funny. It's also pretty bad PR for them. Has anything like that ever happened to you? Have you ever missed a payment and someone come knocking? No. <laughs> okay, just checking. Does that happen to you? <laughs> Gambling day. Have you ever had anything repoed? No. <laughs> All right, let's go to the second tweet. Second tweet comes from Matt Castillo at Interactive Matt. He says, pretty sweet. The first Bitcoin ATM in the U.S. is opening in Austin, Texas. First Bitcoin ATM, David. Are you planning your trip to Austin already? I don't have any Bitcoin, but... We, we, have a, we have a shared Bitcoin. We have a Motley Fool Bitcoin, yeah. A Motley Fool, we have, well, partial one. I think it's pretty cool. What can you say? I was Conti- watching continuing to build up, continuing to build up the infrastructure around Bitcoin. I was watching a, a, a speech from the CEO of Circle. It's a company that 
is kind of like Coinbase. It kind of facilitates business trying to accept Bitcoin. And he said the monetary system that we use today is literally pre-internet. And it's true if you think about it. The, the, visa, sure. the visa and MasterCards are still around. Everything else in our life has kind of evolved around the internet except payment so far. So I don't know. We'll see what happens. <laughs> All right. Finish off with the final tweet. Final tweet is from Kyle at Kyle's09. I was endorsed for a skill on LinkedIn from someone I have never met or spoken to. I'm that good. Matt, give us the one skill you wish to be endorsed with on LinkedIn. Uh. Kung Fu. I, I, have a, I have a really great That's probably, front kick. You can probably get endorsed from that. Really? I would think so. Do you, do you, get, do you get endorsed a lot on, on LinkedIn? No. I guess I'm not that good. I'm not as good as Kyle. <laughs> I actually, I get endorsed a lot, and then I feel really guilty about it, because I don't know what to do about it, because I honestly don't go on LinkedIn all that much, at least mm-hmm. to look at my endorsements and endorse people and that sort of thing. So people endorse me, and then I feel bad that I'm not going back and endorsing them for something because I assume that a lot of that is like quid pro quo kind mm. of thing. Like I'm going to endorse you for you this. You scratch your back. Hint, hint. I scratch your. Yeah. Something, like something like that. Something like that. All right. Well, that's the show for today, mm-hmm. right? You got anything else brilliant to say besides the scratching of backs thing? No, that's the brilliant <laughs> thing I've said all day. <laughs> all right. You can find us on Twitter at TMF Financials. You can find us on Facebook, Motley Fool Financial Services. And of course, you can email us, WTMI at Fool.com. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This is David Hansen. We'll see you tomorrow. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.